Well, um, in our previous church, there was a, uh, a guy who, in fact, he was a sculptor, and he had a very unusual and interesting job. He worked for Madame Tussauds, and he made the heads. And so he, you know, Madame Tussauds, the wax works. And uh, I actually once got to go and see how uh, it all worked, because they were after, and I wish I could remember who it was, but Madame Tussauds is really big in China, uh, and in the Far East, there's Madame Tussauds all over the world. And there, there was a new prime minister or something of Thailand, I think it was, uh, who apparently is the same height and build as me. And so they were after a body model to um, go and be measured up to, you know, to, and if, uh, so I went to, to, the, to the place where they make these waxwork models, and sadly, there was another person who was more of a match for the Prime Minister than me. So I always thought it's a bit of a shame that there isn't an exact replica of my body somewhere in Madame Tussauds in, in China. But, um, but he explained to me what he liked about waxworks. He, he, you know, it's quite easy to make the body, doesn't matter so much under the clothes. He makes the, the heads, the faces. And he explained that if you're sculpting with uh, marble or with stone, you know, you, you chisel it in and then that's, that's it. That's done. But with waxwork, well, you sort of go splodge, 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 there's the eyes, the nose, and the mouth, and then you go around and you do them again, you get a bit more detail, and then, you know, as the face sort of comes together, you're working on it, working on it, going round and round, a bit more on the eyes, a bit more on the nose, a bit more on the mouth, and gradually, more and more detail comes, and the likeness emerges. As I've been reading this chapter this week, I think John, in writing his gospel, is a little bit like that. In contrast to, say, somebody like, if you read, read the writings of St. Paul, he's so worked his way through. If you read, like, the book of Romans or something, it's like, do you understand chapter 5? Right, that's chiselled in. Now we're moving on to the next bit in chapter 6, chisel. John um, introduces all that he's, his themes right at the beginning of the Gospel. And then he goes round and round and round throughout the Gospel, just developing them and working on them a bit more and just a bit more detail and a bit more... And gradually, gradually, gradually the likeness that begins to come out. One writer said that John is a little bit like a spiral staircase. You think you're going round and round and round and round and round, uh, but actually you're going up and up and up and up. And actually, as you read this uh, chapter six, I don't know whether you thought, as I did this week, that, um, hang on a minute, this feels familiar. Um, Last week in chapter five, we were looking at the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, and we said it was all about believing and having life. Well, that's what this chapter is about as well. Um, the word belief or believe comes something like 10 times in this chapter, and the word life uh, comes over 20 times. Have a look down at verse 40. My Father's will is everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Or look at verse 47. We didn't get this far, but who, very truly, Jesus says, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Life, belief, life, belief, life. And he's going round and round and round. It uh, reminds us, doesn't it, of the, of the most famous verse in all the New Testament, John 3.16. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Um, and the summary verse at the end of John where he tells us why he wrote his gospel, he says Jesus did many, many signs which we're working our way through, seven Uh, John includes, he says, these have been written so that you may believe, and by believing, have life. So John is sculpting this image of Christ, and he's going around filling more and more detail in, 
until we find ourselves gazing into the face of the Son of God. Will we believe in him? Will we have life in his name? That's what John's trying to do. Not everybody will. Uh, In fact, um, if you carry on reading this chapter, we read that there's considerable resistance to the portrait of Jesus which is emerging. Look at the way the chapter finishes. You can see on verse 60 onwards that the heading is, many disciples desert Jesus. On hearing it, it says many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, which I think is an authentic reaction when we really get to grips with what Jesus says. We find it hard. Who can accept it, they say. Verse 66, from this time on, many of his disciples, not just those who were kind of interested, but those who would call themselves disciples, turned back and no longer followed him. And of course, in our own day, Sadly, the same thing is happening. We're witnessing more and more people decide that following Jesus is too hard and turning away from him. And Jesus says, verse 67, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answers with some of my favourite words in all the New Testament. Lord, to whom shall we turn? Where else are we going to go? There's no better offers that I can see coming from anybody else. To whom shall we go, Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe. So John's painting this portrait or sculpting this figure. He's got these seven signs. We're taking them week by week in the run-up to Easter. And this is the fourth sign we've just read. It's all about bread. Bread, the universal staple food. Anyone had bread this morning? I suspect some of us probably have had some bread for our breakfast Bread is absolutely universal. In every country's got its own version of bread. There's baguettes and bagels and focaccia and ciabatta and tortillas and naan and pretzels and pitters. There's all sorts of bread, isn't there? White bread, brown bread, granary bread, sweet bread, flat bread, banana bread, potato bread, rice bread, yeast bread, beer bread, quick bread, rye bread, pita bread, soda bread, crisp bread, dry bread, sliced bread, tiger bread, to name a few. You struggle to think of something so universal, wouldn't you, as bread? It's been on the plate of every pauper and prince in every country, in every century, unless you're gluten-free. But even then, there's bread for you of a, of a sort. Um, there's all different kinds of bread, including here in verse 9, lovely little eyewitness detail, five small barley loaves. John tell us, tells us that he's a, an eyewitness at the end of his gospel, All the four Gospels include this account of the feeding of the 5,000, but it's only John who tells us what kind of bread Jesus used, full of eyewitness detail. This, isn't it? Look at verse 10. Plenty of grass around. He obviously remembered the spot. And John tells us that Jesus used five barley loaves to perform one of Jesus' most memorable signs, which some have tried to rationalise or explain away as uh, Jesus teaching some sort of moral lesson about how we all must share with one another and perhaps sort of, you know, Jesus held up this boy's packed lunch and started sharing it and inspired everybody else to share as well and that's how everyone got fed. Uh, Some people maybe have uh, thought that that was the explanation. Well, I don't think that's really what John uh, intended us to believe. Um, Archbishop William Temple, famous Archbishop of Canterbury, at one earlier point in his life was something of a sceptic about the miraculous elements of the Christian gospel. But he eventually came to say this, it is clear that John supposed our Lord to have wrought a creative act. And for myself, I have no doubt that this is what occurred. 
This, however, is only credible if St John is right in his doctrine of our Lord's person. See, John's trying to tell us who this person is who's doing all these things. He's saying he's the Son of God. Well, it only makes sense that he can do that if he is the Son of God. He says, if the Lord was indeed God incarnate, then the story presents no difficulty. Well, of course, that's exactly what this chapter is about. Who is Jesus? The eyes, the nose, the face, the ears, the mouth. It's all coming together. This portrait that John is painting of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God incarnate, God the Son. And just like last week, it's miracle first and then explanation. As I say, this miracle is in all four of the Gospels. Only in John, which we get this extended um, explanation of why Jesus fed the 5,000. It says in verse 14, the people saw the sign and they tried to mob Jesus. Jesus withdrew. And then verse 25 said they found him on the other side of the lake. And it con- c- concludes in verse 59 that he said this, all this bit about the explanation of why he did the miracle, he said, while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So Jesus does the miracle in the wilderness. And then some point later, Jesus is in the synagogue teaching and explaining why he did this. So what does Jesus want to teach us this morning? What does he want to explain to us? Well, I think there's so much in here that it would take an entire series, I think, of Sunday mornings for us to work through the whole of this chapter, which I think we should do at some point in the future. Perhaps come and take a few weeks to work through this amazing chapter. But just I've got three brief observations for us this morning. First, the bread of life is completely satisfactory. Second, the bread of life is available for everyone And third, the full feast is still to come. So first, have a look down. The bread of life is completely satisfactory. Look at verse 11. I think it's uh, poignant that it says that the people there ate as much as they wanted. They had all had enough to eat, verse 12, it says. There were even leftovers, verse 13. And I think the reason why Jesus chose bread to do this sign is bread fills us up, doesn't it? Bread fills us up, and in this sign, in this miracle, everybody was completely satisfied. There are so many things which claim to satisfy us. We all know that, don't we? That in the world, there's all sorts of things vying for our attention. If only we had this, then we'd be satisfied. If only we went on this holiday, if only we drove that car, if only we lived in this house, if only we had that career, if only we wear those clothes, or if only we got into this relationship or got out of this relationship, if only, if only, if only, if only. And yet all those things are like fast food. Or they, they are, as Jesus says in verse 27, food that spoils. They don't satisfy us. Jim Carrey, we were hearing the quote a few weeks ago on, in the, on the Alpha course on Tuesday evenings. There's a quote from Jim Carrey, the famous actor. He says, I wish that everybody could have uh, money and fame and so on and get everything they ever wished for so they could see that it's not the answer. And St. Augustine put it in those memorable words. God, you've made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless. We might say hungry until we've found our rest or our satisfaction in you. Do you know that to be true? Are you satisfied? One friend of mine um, didn't grow up in a Christian family, and I asked him how he became a Christian. Um, how did he come to faith? When he, used the, he put it in these terms, he said he was hungry. And he tried everything. 
to try to satisfy. He tried, you know, all the things that, you, you know, you might try first. Um, going out and having a good time and excess. And so I quite quickly found out, obviously, that leaves you wanting more. And uh, so he, he tried spiritual experience. And he tried all the religions. He read all the books, or at least tried, attempted to. And he described his coming to faith in Jesus Christ as though he'd drunk from so many different wells. And they all had dirty water. But when he drunk from the well of Jesus Christ, it was clear and pure and refreshing. And that's exactly the metaphor which Jesus used. Actually, if you read back in chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the woman at a well, and he says, well, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. And then he actually says the same picture in chapter 7. He says, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me will have rivers of living water. And it's the same picture here in verse 34. Sir, they say, always give us this bread, the hungry. And Jesus said, it's me. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The bread of life is completely satisfactory. Don't you love the firm and the secure promises of Jesus when you come across them in the Bible? It's sometimes worth underlining. You know, just absolutely unequivocal, concrete. I am, Jesus says. There are seven signs that we're working through in John. There are also seven I am statements. And this is the first of those, where Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. They're all up around the room, aren't they? Is the bread of life? Mm. It's over there. I am the bread of life. It's so, it's so definitive, isn't it? I am. Not I might be, or I sometimes am, or, or I am the bread of life. Not I am one of many equally legitimate sources of potential spiritual fulfilment. I am the bread of life. Only I can satisfy you completely. So have we tasted this morning? That's the first thing. The bread of life is completely satisfactory, but secondly... The bread of life is available for everyone. I think that's what Jesus wants to say this morning. Don't you? Verse 35, look at it again. I'm the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whoever, whoever, anyone. And don't you love verse 37? All those the Father gives me, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never drive away. There's nobody who can ever come to Jesus hungry, who Jesus is saying, come to me, come to me, I will satisfy you. And someone comes and goes, nope, not you. You're too young. You're too old. You're too poor. Too rich too uneducated, too clever, too anything. He's never saying, no, 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 not you, go away. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never drive away. And Jesus, what he's offering is not an exclusive dinner for a handful of well-connected individuals. It was a great crowd who came to him, wasn't it, in verse 2? And it's the same word gets repeated in verse 5. You love this. Jesus looks up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, <laughs> hungry. Where on earth are we going to get bread for all these people? And if there's a great crowd, 
You can imagine there's all sorts of people in there, and there's a place in that crowd of hungry people for you and for me. It's available for everybody, what Jesus is offering. He's offering to feed everybody, but I don't think it means that everybody will necessarily want to receive what Jesus has to offer. Because as we mentioned a minute ago, the chapter finishes with plenty of people sort of having a taste, but actually end up walking away. And Jesus doesn't want to force feed anybody the bread of life. He offers it to everybody, but we must come and receive it from him. And the bit which, we didn't read this, but the bit which they don't like, why would anybody not want the bread of life? But look at verse 60 when it says many of his disciples said, this is hard, and they turn away. It's the bit where they begin to understand in the previous section that what Jesus is talking about is the cross. Verse 51 He says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's going to give his body. The sign is pointing, isn't it? It's pointing forwards to the time when he will give his body for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus says in verse 53, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, we know what that's pointing to, don't we? Not literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood, although it's understandable that the early Christians were accused of cannibalism. You have no life in you, Jesus says. He's saying that this sign... The feeding of the multitude is pointing forward to Good Friday when his body will be broken, his blood will be shed. And he says that the way to eternal life is to appropriate and to receive that sacrifice for ourselves, to feed on his flesh, to eat his body, to give up our lives, to do as that communion prayer, um, which we'll have after we've shared in Holy Communion, says, and offer ourselves as a living sacrifice for us to follow in the way of the cross of Jesus. In fact, as the collect prayed, I only just noticed that as we read it a minute ago, We just prayed, just like Jesus didn't enter glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. And I think it's sometimes when people realise that Jesus is, what his invitation actually is, is actually to lay our lives down, to come and walk the way of the cross. And it's only that in laying our lives down that he will raise us up and lots of people don't want to do that but we're all invited we're all invited nobody's excluded all those the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me wanting to follow the way of the cross i will never drive away the bread of life is completely satisfying it's for absolutely everybody but thirdly finally the full feast is still to come because there's a tension in the christian life that the theologians call the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. The kingdom of God is now, it's here now, but the kingdom of God is still to come. And it's holding both of those two things together. And that tension is here in this passage. I mean, Jesus is offering to fill our every spiritual hunger now, isn't he? I think that's what he's saying in verse 35. Come to me, you'll never go hungry. Believe in me, you'll never be thirsty. Or look at verse 47. Verse truly, I tell you, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life, not will have someday in the future, but has, has now 
And surely that's our experience if we've become a Christian. It was the experience of my friend. He said he, he drunk from all the wells. This was the one that satisfied him. And if we're a Christian, surely it's because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and he has satisfied us. He has quenched our thirst. He has given us peace and rest. And yet, as one writer says, all kinds of problems result when the expectations of the unremitting joy and peace of the kingdom are shattered by the harsh realities of a world still groaning in bondage to sin. Gosh, isn't that true? Too many tender Christian lives have been maimed by the failure to see the reality of what is still not yet, even for the spirit-filled Christian. You see, the people that Jesus fed were far from home. And the manna that was eaten in the Old Testament reading in Exodus chapter 16, they were in the wilderness, weren't they? Verse 49, that's what Jesus says, your ancestors at the manna in the wilderness. And we may feel this morning that we're in the wilderness. In fact, Peter, who says, we're not going anywhere else, uh, you've got the words of eternal life, he started off his letter, if you read Peter's letter to the church, by describing them as aliens and pilgrims in exile. We're in the wilderness. Jesus promises to sustain us in the wilderness, and yet he also says that true fulfilment, what we're really looking forward to, is the resurrection feast at the last day. Jesus is promising that crystal clear, isn't it? Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. That same phrase repeated. Same phrase is repeated in verse 44. I will raise them up at the last day. Or in verse 54. I will raise them up at the last day. And the last day hasn't happened yet. The now and the not yet. Jesus will promise to satisfy our souls. Everybody is invited. But the full feast is still to come. So John is sculpting his waxwork of Jesus. Is the detail becoming clearer? Are we beginning to see the likeness of Christ more clearly as we see where these signs are pointing? Well, now we see as through a glass darkly, as Paul said, then we will see face to face. Let's pray, shall we?